We'll be reading from Judges as we continue on with Gideon. This is the end of Gideon's life. Uh, Gideon the hacker, you know, as we talked about. Uh, but let me read from Gideon's 8, 22 through 35. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your sons and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold rings, earrings. They answered, We'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping worshiping it there and it became a snare to Gideon and his family thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again during the Gideon's lifetime and the land enjoyed peace for 40 years Jerubbaal son of Joash went back home to live he had 70 sons of his own for he had many wives his concubine who lived in Shechem also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abizarites. No sooner had Gideon died than Israelites again prostituted themselves, prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth and their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their men and enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, for all the good things he had done for them. This is the word of the Lord. I'm Howard Brown, the senior pastor at Christ Central Church. We're going to continue in our sermon series in the book of Judges today. And um, every week I take time to preface uh, before preaching that Judges, this book, marks a particular and peculiar time in redemptive history. That means that it is filled with, as we can see as we go through this book, with war and blood and fighting. And these things are actually good and right to glorify not fallen man or a group of people, but God's place in redeeming the world, starting uh, with a people that he calls to bear his name and purpose in the earth, a people, the Israelites, that, let me go ahead and say, aren't any better or more moral than any others around them, but for God's glory. They're recipients of his grace, and now they're imperfect instruments. Even in wartime at this time in history, they're imperfect instruments uh, to bring the world God's perfect plan of justice and mercy and grace. And I can tell you that though the Bible um, teaches us that our weapons are no longer physical, and that our war is no longer against people per se, they are no less powerful, no less violent, against what would seek to destroy humankind, what would seek to oppress us, what would seek to hurt our relationship with God. Now, that said, let's continue our look into the reign and life of this judge, this military leader of Israel, Gideon. Now, last week, um, when Pastor Giorgio preached, we saw Gideon tearing down idols of worship. Hacker is his name of name, meaning of his name, tearing down idols of worship in his own hometown. And, and this week, as we can tell from the text, he is leading an all out construction of a 
another idol. Last week, we saw Gideon preparing to lead his people to God-provided victory. This week, we see Gideon leading his people, um, not in victory, but leading them away from God in a return to idol worship. And as you look at this text and you see where we've come with Gideon, how could something so good go so bad? I mean, how in the world did we get to this point? Well, let's take a look back leading up to this point. So far, we have walked with Gideon through his disbelief in God and his distrust of God from his uh, cowardly need to be reassured that God is with him. Reassured because he just doesn't trust God. He requests sign after sign on top of what God had already said. We, we have seen Gideon as called and climbed to being the leader of Israel. All being said and considered, what we've mainly seen is a very patient God, a very kind God, a very powerful God. Let me let you know, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Midianites have come in from the east. They pushed the Israelites off their land, their, their promised land into the ghettos of the day. Literally, Israelites are living in the hills. The Bible says that they are, have stacked themselves in the high-rise, project-worthy caves. That they've become a marginalized people. That they're now marked with fear and, and, and powerlessness and faithlessness. It was against this mighty horde, I would call them, of, 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 of Midianites that, that Gideon, God through Gideon, through scary, unsure Gideon at the helm of Israel's army, commands that their army be cut down to 300 men. God's calling them to take a stand with 300 against as many as 200,000. And he had the 300 take trumpets and torches and stand in three places around the Midianite camp. And at the last minute, God gives scary Gideon yet another sign. He has Gideon go down to the camp and he overhears some people talking in the tent. And one of the Midianites have had a, has, had a dream. And the dream is that a giant loaf of bread was rolling down the hill and crushed our tents. And crushed the Midianites. The loaf, of course, meant the Israelites. With that dream causing fear among the Midianites. Gideon's men looking like a, looking more like a band and pep squad and less like the team stands on the hillside in three places around the Midianite camp and the Midianites got so afraid they turned on each other. Killing each other. You, you, you know what happens. You watch a game at the end of the game when someone makes a mistake. When the agony of defeat begins to step in. You know you're going to get T.O. coming and yelling at one of the coaches or one of the players. Or maybe it's Bobby Knight to, you know, stomping on one of his players' feet. But th- this is what happens. The Midianites are beginning to t- turn on each other. Man, I thought this plan was going to work. What about that dream? What's going on? And they begin to pull their swords out. Armies marched. What's going on here? You see, back then, armies marched in led by bands. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a military parade, but the first one's in. The trumpets, the drums, the band. And then you got the guys with the, the rifles coming in. And so when they see 300 band members, they're like, um, they got 300 in the band? They must have 300,000 somewhere in the hills. 
you know, it's, it's like you, the hoopla before any game. Like, well, I went to Clemson, so I'll talk about our, our, our tradition, which is, you know, you get this big, uh, thing coming where, you know, something's gonna happen and you see the team appear on the hill and the cannon goes on, boom, boom! Fight song hits, guys run down the hill with 80,000 screaming fans and a blaring fight song. And you know, you hope to make the other team think, oh lord, we's in trouble today. We hadn't taken the field, but I'm not sure what the plans the coach gave us can handle this. And the Midianites, the Bible said, began fleeing, some in different directions from the main group. And the Bible says that Gideon called in all the men that were cut, the ones that didn't make the 300, and the rest of Israel to the north to begin to clear out these Midianites that are running in all these different places. And, you know, it's like, and then he calls the Ephraimites uh, to, to make sure that these Midianites go directly east back from where they came from, not south into Israel, not north into the interior. And so it's, it's almost like a gang up. You ever seen anybody get ganged? And it always starts with one person fighting. And when that guy hits the ground, everybody coming and stomping. Yeah, yeah, man. It's a gang up. It's like the movie Friday when Debo gets beat by Craig. What happens? Red, Smokey, Ezel, they all get a shot. Ezel come and take the shoes, of course. Because he don't kill, he steal. They're convinced that it's okay. You know, they were called late to the battle, the Ephraimites, because they get the spoils. And so the, the, all of Israel gets to enjoy this victory. And so the Bible says that the Gideon is chasing, um, the, 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 the 300 and Gideon are chasing these Midianites away and they, they go across the Jordan and to the east where they came from. And the Bible says the first city that Gideon comes to is Sakoth. They're Israelite brothers from the east side. And of course they thought, you know, these are brothers. Yeah, they might be east side, we might be west side, but they thought, you know, one of moms could cook up some waffles or chicken or something. I mean, because the army was really tired to help feed them. And you know, at this point, Midian was so scary that they looked at Gideon and his tired 300 and the daddies, which were the elders of town, would not allow their kids to get involved with the small group of hooligans that Gideon was leading. You know, these militants, these black panthers that were just going to cause more trouble for the neighborhood. The elders are like, there's no way. Not until you get the king. Sorry, we can't help you. And then Gideon is 300. Come to the next time on the next town of their east side brothers, Peniel. And, and still this east versus west thing is in full effect. And, and in Peniel, they had this uh, tall tower, this military tower. And they could see very far away. And as far as they could see, Gideon was still outnumbered. They're like, get in this basic math here, man. You know, y'all got 300 tired former band members against the reigning state champs. We ain't crazy enough to help you. You know, this is like public enemy. I can't do nothing for you, man. You jump from the jelly to the jam. I, I can't do nothing for you. I'm sorry. And Gideon looks at his 300. He says, come on. We don't need these haters, but we'll be back. You will see, we will overcome. The Bible says that he captures the kings and he brings them back to the towns that refused to help him. And the Bible says he took briars and thorns and, and tortured the leaders of the elders of the town for not helping him. And then he went back to the other city that what, you know, the one that could count so well. And he pulled down their tower and killed some of their fighting men. And this should sound a little strange. 
It was black on black crime. Serbs versus the Bosnians. It was just just, and but it just wasn't right. And then the Bible says he takes the kings and instead of chopping their heads off himself, which they kind of did back then, I guess, declaring himself the leader and victor of Israel and exacting right vengeance on his family, the Bible says he looks at his son and says, son, here's the sword. You cut their heads off. You know, it was like, come on, boy, I'm going to let you reel in the big fish I've hooked. You know, I'm going to let you carve the turkey on this Christmas. And the kings say to Gideon, no way. And and then his son kind of gets afraid in ignorance of what to do. And they say, no way you do it. And a couple of things are going on here. First, there's a certain honor of war. The kings are like, Gideon, if we're going to die today, it needs to be a man for a man. Not a boy for a man. That ain't right. Thinking, Gideon, you know, this, this, like I, this heart don't pump no Kool-Aid. I, I ain't no kid. And secondly, it probably would have taken a while for the kid to do it. I was reading this commentary and it said, you know, a skilled person is the person you want to chop your head off because if he's not strong enough, I, I'm like thinking like the king. I'm going to die anyway today, right? Make it quick. Don't give it to the boy with the pencil neck. You know, he ain't been lifting weights because he's going to swing. And it might go one eighth in. You know what I'm saying? And he's got to come back again. So, so part of it is please let you do it. Gideon was trying to raise the stock of his son as the heir apparent to be the man. The Bible tells us when Gideon returns home to what I would describe as the after party. You know, the victory's done. The music's going. Folks probably dancing. Drinking a little bit, retelling the stories of victory, probably a little bit more fantastic than normal. You know, man, those Midianites are running and I jumped up five feet in the air and I took them out with one blow. You know, this is the night somebody going to get the girl he always wanted because of the little cut on his arm and, and the story, you know, because of the story that goes with it. But by far the biggest story in the room was all about Gideon, the man, the big dog. A wannabe who now is all of that. He thought he couldn't be. And we know this story all too well. We've heard it before. We have an idea of what is going to happen. How this great hacker down of idols and enemies became a hacker of his own people and an erector of idols. How this humble boy done good has gone from poet to gangster. How the block party and family reunion became something later. That night the cops had to come and clean up. This is Gideon gone bad. We all in some way have experienced the rise and rush of power that causes us to do and think some crazy things. And more so, all of us have experienced good power and authority gone bad. Power and authority crushing and corrupting us. And now, like Israel, I would say we don't need another good power or authority to do something. Another strong hero. What Israel needed was a redeeming power and redeemer to fix the mess. But before we get into power and authority being messy, let's recognize that power and authority was created to do and be good for us. Good because like the story of Gideon, It brings power to the powerless. 
I'm going to understand this number 300. The 300 represented a number, the degree of Israel's power against the world around them and in this diminutive faith in them. This army had become nothing but a marching band. They were living weak and oppressed and powerless, not because of numbers, but because of their state of mind and health and belief. And Gideon's God-given power and authority were good for that. He was used to to bring a new uh, power to the powerless, to call a small, marginalized people to, to have the ability to stand against something, to fight the power. Understand that these people are powerless to move out their fear and stand. His power, his place of authority empowered them to be able to live free again. Gideon uses his authority and express power to call the rest of the armies to fight, to fight the power. He tries in vain to get the east side towns um, to move out of fear into freedom, but he had to bring them freedom by doing what they were powerless to do. He gets a defense to come from the north and south to create a, create a protective charge and shield against the interior from stopping midnight infiltration. And we can see that power and authority, which is army power here, is good. Is good as it guards the powerless. The, the non-fighting against the oppressive deadly powers. This stuff is good stuff. And it doesn't always appear as dramatically in our world as a war or, or a Gideon type. But, but it's, it's, it's what mom and dads do every day for their children. It's what the police and National Guard and military do every day. It's what lawyers and teachers and in our context, what pastors are called to do spiritually. To say no. To say Yes. And say, this is true and this is not true. To provide mercy and care for those who can't for themselves. Power and authority created and given by God in and outside of religious settings is good to be the power and secure presence of the oppressed and powerless. To be, oh, so close to what we need and desire redemptively. So close that those in power and authority should point us to God's love and care for us. And for that, you and I should be thankful and responsive and respectful of what power and authority through mom and dad and President Bush and the military the police officers and the pastors and the churches and the social leaders of our time. We should be thankful and take it as good, right? Shouldn't we? To be honest, I, I would say that the Bible in this story would say yes and no. No, never in and of itself or any power or authorities good enough or to be thanked as being good enough. And you ask, why? Because we live in a world in which power and authority, as good as it could be because of its fallen and broken people in context, it's corrupt and corruptible. So back to the party that the Israelites are having for Gideon. That's in your text this morning. 
Israelites are at a big celebration. Gideon has led them well, pretty well. You know how parties are. You can kind of see or imagine uh, just a small group of people beginning to talk, you know, filled with the excitement of the victory, going around the room, you know, beginning a campaign. Let's do something nice for our leader. Let's honor him. You know, he is the man and all of that. And yeah, good idea. And at the end of the night, they kind of pull Gideon in and surround him like, you know how they do at those silly restaurants where they sing happy birthday. You know, they're pulling him in and, and we all had a good idea. You rule over us. Yeah, man. You hip, hip, hooray for he's a jolly good fella. Let's do it. And before someone can get Gideon's name or face tattooed on their shoulder or start airbrushing his face on some cheap shirt at a county fair, he kind of bursts their bubbles. I will not rule over you, he says. Neither me nor my sons. The Lord rule over you. You can kind of hear this silent, what? Come on, man, you're the leader. You know, people begin to think that you, you, you when, the, when the party begins to die down, whispering, I don't understand why he'd be so ungrateful. What's wrong with him, man? Don't you want to be our king? What's ironic is that in this statement, he declares, he almost prophesies what they should have known and seen and would very soon find out in the next moment. Gideon could not and should not handle the power and authority that came with kingship. The kingship that they wanted and needed so badly. And just maybe he knew, he could already tell from his actions, maybe according to what his feeling and what he would find out and discover, he was capable and thus incapable of and being a leader of a power and authority for his people. He says, please don't do this. You know, it's like that uncle at the wedding or party that gets bad. And begged to speak and dance. Come on, uncle. Knowing for himself that he's had too much to drink to be trusted. Come on, please. We want you. Say a speech. Dance with us. And Gideon gives in conscious enough to know that the request could end in disaster, but too drunk with pride and bloodshed to stop himself. And, you know, I wonder if Gideon is one of those guys who grew up kind of nerdy. And he's thinking, man, this is this is a great opportunity. I mean, I finally am somebody. I don't want to give up this chance. I don't want to go back to being a wimp who, who won't be going back to being a nothing. And he succumbs to a devastating encouragement from a people who have missed his issue. They He suggests this. I tell you what. Give some jewelry and make a golden ephod. To be constructed in my own hometown. And already wanting to thank him, loving him, worshiping him, they go through with it. What a mistake. What a big mess we see, but more so, what a missing of the words that came out of Gideon's mouth. It is safe to say that, that they, the Israelites, were already too drunk themselves to not ask drunk cousin Junebug to have the first dancer speech. They're too drunk with fear and unbelief to not make a request of kingship and not follow through in making this ephod like all of us. Blind humanity, they ask for and get what they should not have. But, oh, Gideon was so close. He was so close to what they wanted and needed from God. You see, they missed it. I almost missed it, too. Gideon was already giving signs that he could not be their king. 
that he should not rule over them. Or, or, or he, he had already flipped. Now, think about how he handles the East Side brothers. And I want you to consider this. No one was more unfaithful, more fearful, needed more convincing, needed God alone to prove himself than Gideon. God gave Gideon chance after chance and could have taken him out in his idolatrous disbelief, even if his heart began to think it, God could have taken him out and, and, and because of his disobedience and distrust. And yet God let him live to lead him to grace. And yet when he comes upon these kind of uh, skeptical, unbelieving, distrustful brothers, he comes with discipline. Gideon comes with a beatdown, a condemnation and not a correction that would point to a patient, loving, caring grace that God had shown him. I mean, it makes you ask. Gideon, how could you be so hard and condemning to your brothers when God has been so good and gracious to you? When you stop, you know how this happens? When you stop being a needy, undeserving recipient of God's grace and you become this new power and authority, God yourself. Gideon told them rightly, I can't rule over you. I'm still not the redemptive, gracious Lord you need. And the irony continues because Gideon warns them against his own brainwashing of them. If we look at the actions when he takes the two kings and he cuts their heads off and, 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 and the way he kills the, the people on the east side, he is letting this them know this. I, I mean, I'm harsh. I'm not gracious. I'm not good. And what this actually does in the hearts of the people is they begin to fear him. They begin to say, man, if well, I don't want to be on the other side, Gideon, be our king. Having lived through years of Midianite oppression, they want Gideon to provide more than he could or even should have. They want Gideon. This is what they want. They want Gideon to take the oppression. They want Gideon to make them believe again. They want Gideon uh, to give them proof, to be the living proof in his actions that God is our God. They want Gideon to heal broken relationships with God. They want Gideon to be a savior. And, and this is more clear in the request of a kingship. Now you have to consider uh, where they are in, in this pagan world. And what's happening is, after being under pagan kings for seven years, they are saying, Gideon, be our Messiah. Be our savior. Be God with us. Let your presence tell us that we are secure that we are safe, that we are important. It's hard for us in modern day to understand what it means to say, let your sons and grandsons rule us. It means this, Gideon, be eternal among us. Let Gideon in his essence never leave us. You can see what Gideon says, no. I am not your Lord. I can't be your God. I'm 35 years old. And what my father, my daddy, did or didn't say, or to this day does or doesn't say, has the ability to control my feelings about things. So much so, sometimes I am not sure 
that my calling as a pastor at this church or my success as a pastor of this church can be true or right or successful unless my dad affirms it. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? There is a right and real weight to those who are called to lead us and have power and authority over us. Because they are, oh, so close to who and what God is about. But it is not to ultimately and as an end to themselves free us and secure us and to make us believe and to heal us of the oppression of being human in a fallen world. We don't take power and authority well because we want a savior in them. We want the boss to like us. We want our jobs to give us worth. And I don't care how good mama is and was in the absence of daddy. Mama cannot and should not and did not save you. Some of you think, oh, how wonderful my children are. Oh, they are my new life and my new hope. How can you dare make your child your new king? Some of you are associated with a new church. I hate to call it out sometimes. Or this great uh, community group that, that you're in. Or, or this new mentor in your life. Some people, it's a new husband or wife or, or a hopeful husband or wife that will rescue you. And you know, we wonder how these churches and movements have this one person at the top. Um, these churches with what I would call pastor kings over the kingdom of church serfs. How do they get like this? Because deep down, we want and make people and institutions our kings, our kingdoms. It's funny that we want what may have already spoken and will speak like Gideon does here in their failures and abuse, abuse that we, they, he, her, whatever it is, may be so, so close to making us feel free and alive and secure and saved, but they cannot be your redeemer. I mean, look at what happens after the moment of clarity. It, it only lasts a minute and then it goes dark. When I read this passage, when he says, you know, I can't rule over you. I won't rule. My sons won't rule. The Lord rule you. In other words, let the Lord be your king. It's, and then the next line, wait a minute. Like, hold on a second though. Why are you at it? Why don't we, uh, uh, why don't we make a golden ephod? Give me a gold. Let, let's make something up in my hometown. And it's, it's like Jekyll on the way to hide. Kind of telling people, get away. I'm about to turn. The thing that came to my mind, because, you know, I grew up in the 80s, was, was like Michael Jackson in Thriller. Remember that Thriller video? He's about to turn to the beast, and he's yelling at the S-curl queen. Get away! You know, and just like that, Gideon's warning becomes a reality. Gideon goes wild. He thinks, okay, okay, I got him here, right where I want him. Can't let this moment pass by. I can't go back to being a nerd. I can't go back to being beat up by my brothers for, for tearing down auto. I can't. I, I, I got to do it. And Gideon calls to have the jewelry made into the golden ephod. And when we look at the people's response, this should feel like when back in the day when, when God asked his people to give their gold to make the tabernacle, to make a place where God will meet them and, and, and where they can re-worship. And, and so let me, he's saying, Gideon, help you here. Let me, let me explain it. 
An ephod was the garment the high priest wore when he went before God on behalf of the people. And so when Gideon has this particular item constructed and then done in his own hometown, you may be able to guess what this is saying. Because place meant as much as the altar itself. He's saying, I, my people, my rule, my legacy is why and where Israel worships. Now, without saying that I am the Lord, this we, I am where the Lord is. I have become my fake wannabe kingship is the mediation between God and his people. And the Bible says that it became a snare for Gideon and his family. In other words, they began to believe the hype. Gideon begins to act out. He goes wild. He has 70 kids. He's got all these wives. He's got a concubine, which tells us Gideon has taken the choice women from all over the nation. And he's having plenty of kids with all these baby mamas from different places so that he can have props wherever he goes. He's, um, how can I say it, uh, spreading his seed all over the nation. Putting his image and likeness all over the place. He was mega church building through multiple sites. The Bible says he even names one of his sons Abimelech. And there's two ways of interpreting it. Either my father, the king, or father of the king. In other words, I told you I can't rule over you, but I really want to be the king. I want to be the man. Because I feel like I'm the man. Gideon led their hearts to see and declare and allow him to be the king. He led and left, led with his actions of discipline and killing the men, his fellow brothers. He led them to fear him, to fear his rule, to worship at his feet, to be at his disposal. His failure as a leader, as one in a place of power and authority, pointed short of the God who would save these people. And it teaches us something about power and authority in our world and our lives. It is not so good. Power and authority corrupts and it crushes and it makes us feel uncomfortable. It can be abusive and neglectful and self-serving and being and be oh so far from what is good. Face it. Everyone in this room has experienced the oppressive abuse of neglect and have been damaged by the self-glorifying, self-centered decisions of someone who should have in their place of power and authority loved you and protected you and nurtured you. I mean, I can't help but think we live in such a fatherless world. A world of males who, for their own security and desires, have refused to step up and be men. To stay with their families. To suffer. To show mercy and love and guidance. Why is it that daddy has to be so emotionally immature? Why can't he love me and care for me unless I do well? We live in a world in which a woman and children are more often victims than victors of humanity's growth. Some of you have been forced to call your own family members and neighbors predators. In the nightmare of childhood, now in your adulthood, 
you realize was no dream. You were taken advantage of. What does Gideon's fall teach us? That all earthly kings fail and fall into oppression and neglect. Our kings. The relationships that rule your lives. The dictators of your hearts. Of how and whether you can trust or not. They have messed up and stay on the throne of your lives. Be- because of their kingship and strong of hold, some of you are sexually twisted. Others of you are overworked and even more live without real relationship. And what happens? We end up hating ourselves and hating the church and hating mom and dad and, and hating all those in positions of authority. And unfortunately, many of us are now the tyrannical, neglectful, failing abusive kings ourselves and like the Israelites with those things our kings our oppressors the things that drive us and give us security we can't worship right you can't enjoy or be enjoyed by a God who loves you in real community and care with those around you. You and I are trapped like Gideon and his people, worshiping an idol built on the kingship of others or the kingship of ourselves. One thing I realized about this generation, we don't like power and authority. I... Read some social commentaries on, on what, what go, what's going on in the Generation X. There's an utter distrust of mom and dad and people who stand in places of authority, pastors, teachers, police officers, presidents. Because it's true. There's been great damage done to you. Someone's taken your worth like Gideon took the gold and melted it down to praise themselves. Don't miss what Gideon is saying here. For our oppression and our abuse, it's not that we don't need a king. No, on the contrary, we do need a king. We have a king. In fact, Gideon is saying this about himself. The wannabe king has a king above him. And Gideon gives us the good news of the gospel, which is this. Fallen people and fallen leaders, failed moms and dads, the oppressed the abused and the abusing and the oppressing, God has given the world A king, whom the Bible describes as the king of kings, a lord over all the lording things in your life. Jesus the Lord, the Messiah king, a redeemer king, which means this. Jesus triumphs over all the damage and control of the abusive kings, and he powerfully changes hearts and calls moms and dads and pastors and and leaders and generally those in charge of others. And even those seeking, you and me seeking to be in charge of ourselves, To repent and repeat what Gideon declares about the gospel. 
to look to a king who is not self-serving or gratuitous or telling us to get it together or else, but speaks and lives and declares grace and peace and forgiveness to us. A Redeemer King who died and lives for you to rescue you, to, to lead you, to love you like, like all have failed to do before. You know, all the people you trusted, all the folk you thought, man, they, they care about me and they didn't. For, for those of us who say, you know, I'm a good dad or a good mom and you really aren't as good as you should be. And, and in some ways you presented yourself as a savior to your kids instead of pointing them to Jesus. All of those people, all of those places, Jesus came to make you and me damaged by mistaking and misleading power and authority to be gracious recipients of a God and Lord Jesus who is patient in your faithlessness, kind in your unbelief, merciful in your cowardliness, strong against your self-destructing pride, and willing, unlike Gideon was with his east side brothers, to take the briars and thorns and death you and I deserve so that we can live to enjoy the spoils of his victory. Because Jesus doesn't want to be king. The Bible says he is king. King over all that want to be. We read that creed this morning. It declares Jesus is the king and head of the church. What that means is his administration comes through his church. Where is people? These people up in here? Church people, members, come and lay down their crowns. This is what Christianity is about. In part, we come and lay down our glory and our pride and all the mistakes we made in leading our own lives. We lay down our strength at his feet and say, you be the king. Take my life. And with that, take your place, Lord as king and redeemer of my life. Stuff is so messed up. I've been treated and abused and used so badly. I don't trust power and authority. I I even lay down that crown. Most of us in here, we are running our own lives because someone's ruined it already for us. We are distrustful. And what Christianity says, lay down your crowns. And with this place, where through the work of his kingdom and church, those oppressed and damaged can be loved. Not all so close to being loved. But really, real eternal, lasting redemption. What will you do? That crown on your head is mighty heavy. What will we do? The oppression and abuse and neglect is too much for you to bear. And it's way too much for you to ask anybody else in your life on this earth to bear. Quit being a wannabe and become the wanted. Wanted and loved. 
by the king of all of us wannabe kings. The Lord Jesus Christ. King of all us wannabe kings. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We have looked not past those who should be leading us to you. We look to our parents and our teachers and our leaders. We fail to look to you. Help us heed these words. The Lord is our King. He is the only one powerful to change us and love us and give us grace. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. Be our King. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.